welcome back to the VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and it's been a little while, and we apologize about that, but we've been in heavy development, doing interesting things and moving around from our places of work to turning to our homes into places of work. All in all, though, we're overjoyed to be back uh, with you. Uh, and I am joined as, uh, as thankfully I have been so many times before by the great Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I am A-OK, situation normal, uh, working from my home studio. <laughs> and probably from one of the worst epicenters of the crisis, uh, Jason Diamond, how are you? Uh, I'm great. I'm in a bunker in Queens. Yeah, my heart goes out to you. New York has really taken uh, an overly, um, I mean, it's really taken the brunt of stuff in a way that uh, no one could have foreseen, I think. So yeah, I'm glad to hear you're OK. Yeah, yeah, we're all good. Thank you. I must say, as we're recording this, um, it's the end of April and we are coming out of it in Australia. We're just starting to relax restrictions and uh, open up because we have hardly any cases that are being reported on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I fear the US is also opening up, though I say I fear because I'm not 100% sure that they shouldn't wait a bit longer before opening up, but that's an outsider's point of view. I don't know what you think, Matt, but or Jason, but anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, I would probably agree with that assessment at the, I mean, today it's... Uh... You know, we're still in my state anyway. Here in Virginia, we're still uh, on a you know stay-at-home order, and um, I feel like it's cases are sort of flattening out, but they're still pretty high. And it seems like it's there's not much testing or tracing or any of that kind of stuff that they talk about doing in uh, other locations. And so I worry that uh, you know it, it's not really the right time to like ease back on the throttle. But um, yeah, I don't know that our country's done a great job of being um, uh, very uh, no. proactive. No. <laughs> being a bunch of whiny babies does not help uh, quarantines or following rules. Uh, somebody forgot to tell people that democracy doesn't mean that you can just decide which rules to follow. But that's how we are in America. Yeah, yeah. Well, and as I say, regardless of the political implications of why and wherefores, uh, I do feel incredibly bad for people that have been caught up in it. And I have a friend, yeah. a colleague who um, who uh, unfortunately suffered, as I'm sure you would have friends and colleagues who have suffered very, very severe personal cost with uh, their elderly parents, just mm -hmm. horrendous stories. Yeah. So um, in addition to all of the other things, um, of course, that's impacted our industry uh, tremendously as a huge number of uh, freelancers and uh, contract people have sort of not necessarily been fired but haven't been picked up for more work and uh, that again is another massive hardship that a lot of uh, listeners I'm sure of uh, yeah have I think had. I saw that 71 percent of uh, yeah like Hollywood uh, uh, or film workers uh, globally are like 100 percent unemployed at the present moment. So, I mean, that's a huge, yeah. you know, three quarters of the, uh, of the working, um, industry are out of work. Yeah. So, um, what we're going to focus on today is not the crisis, but in fact, uh, one of the things that's been remarkable is the, uh, as the cinemas have closed down, of course, and sports have also closed down as have, uh, you know, production of, uh, I don't know what you call it really, I guess, um, reality TV, that kind of stuff. Um, but 
for the streaming services and for uh, sort of quality television programming that was already in the can, as it were, um, there's been an enormous boon uh, in terms of subscriptions and uh, viewing and just even ratings. Um, there are shows like, I don't know, Survivor, that obviously they've stopped filming new episodes for, but the old, uh, the current series was already completely in the can, and that's, you know, experiencing the strongest ratings it's had in years. But away from that sort of television, there are these gems that people have gravitated to because they're so interesting uh, and, you know, maybe a little, quite a little more thought, but you've got time to, to give them thought. And one of those is devs, and that's what we'll be talking about today. A, uh, I think, a remarkable uh, mini-series that in the States is what, on FX or Hulu or something? FX, FX and Hulu. Like it, it airs on FX right. and then it goes immediately to Hulu, which is where I watched it, on Hulu. Right. Yeah. So I guess, Jason, just right off the bat, did, did you watch these episodes sort of over time or did you binge them? I mean, it's like no, I watched 410 every, minutes. I watched watch them every thing. week. Yeah, I watched the whole thing right. and I watched them every week as they came out. Each episode, I would forget when they would come out. And then uh, I think here they came out Thursdays and either that Thursday or Friday, I'd be like, oh, a new episode. Like it was, it was um, interesting in a world where we can binge everything like, oh, Tiger King, go watch all of it, you know, and which I like because it's fun. But I also, you know, forgot the sort of joy of having to wait every week for something and watch it, um, which changes the way that the content you view it because you're not rolling, you know, mentally from one episode into the other, which, um, you know, you kind of have to stew on it, think about it. And then the next week, it shows up and you watch it and you go, right, that's what happened. That character, you know, and it's, you know, it's the way, you know, I sure the three of us grew up watching television. Yeah. Um, so, so it was, it was um, nice to sort of feel that again. And just as an aside, I'm a big Alex Garland fan of his, both his books and his screenplays and movies that he's made. And I think, um, you know, I also like when, you get a full vision from somebody because he wrote and directed all of these. Um, uh, and, and it, I mean, it shows, right? Cause it's a singular vision. Uh, even when you have guest directors, you know, you generally don't notice it, but in, in this case, you know, it was, it was pretty, you know, there's a, a solid through line and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Just before I jump to you, Matt, um, I I only vaguely know of him as a novelist. What books have you read? Uh, I read a book of his called Coma. Uh, okay, was not it the good? Michael Crichton one, but yeah, yeah, it was about a guy who um, got into a fight and is in a coma, and then the whole book takes place in his head during the coma, uh, and it's really kind of weird and trippy. And you know, he wrote also, hmm. uh, I think the first six or five Danny Boyle movies you know, starting with the beach, I think maybe earlier than that. I don't you know. Obviously he didn't write train spotting. That was Irvine Welsh, but he also wrote sunshine and 28 days later and, you know, a number of uh, screenplays for him. And then of course, ex machina annihilation. And now this. Um, Matt, where did you sort of pick up on Alex's work a lot earlier than this, or are you uh, late to the party? I, I think I, I hadn't, known of Alex Garland until Ex Machina, you know, that was really right. the first time that I became aware of him. And, you know, immediately, uh, you know, I love that movie. I thought it was 
so so smart and um, well made and so stylish too, um, beautifully uh, executed on so many levels. Um, and then I was really excited when I heard that he was going to do um, uh, Annihilation, the the book one essentially from the the Southern Reach trilogy of books um, uh, written by uh, it escapes me right now, but uh, by another writer, but um. And uh, I enjoyed Annihilation. I thought it was it was uh, certainly visually interesting and had some really neat uh, concepts and ideas in it in terms of the way that uh, it was art directed and executed. It had a, a, some some flaws too, maybe I think. Uh, and I think we did a show on Annihilation, if I'm not mistaken, way back when. But um, and when I heard that, I, I saw a trailer for this uh, or a teaser or something for this show devs um probably only maybe a month or maybe a couple months before um it started showing on um on effects here and uh it looked so interesting and um i think the initial kind of uh blurbs on it were you know had something to do with um you know quantum computing and a you know a tech company and um, I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be, but I have to say, um, upon watching it, I, I just have to say, I think it's one of the, the smartest, most interesting, um, science fiction, like philosophical science fiction. Um, it's political, it's, um, uh, allegorical and it's so engaging on so many levels. I think it's one of the smartest science fiction things I've seen in, yeah, I agree. uh, a long time and i just i absolutely loved it i think there's so much um for any science fiction fan to really sink their teeth into and engage with with this series um and it's short too i think it's only what eight episodes um but i just thought it was absolutely yeah. brilliant i think it's probably the best science fiction i've seen uh really since ex machina and maybe it might even be uh, something for me that's at a level that's it feels like a companion piece to that uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I just, I loved it. I thought it was so, so great for a number of reasons that we can get into, but. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I thought it was great too. Um, it was, we obviously had a break from doing the podcast and I was seriously thinking we're going to come back with Westworld, um, which I love, but this, this is really engaging stuff. And I, I'll even go further and say as incredibly engaging as it is, uh, I saw an early PR picture of it as well. And I noticed in it, the PR picture, um, what looked to me like a complete copy of the uh, IBM uh, quantum computer. And I'd just come back from um, a conference in Hawaii where I was talking to quantum physicists and they were discussing the, the work that they were doing with the IBM stuff. And I was like, oh my God, they're, you know, they're going to do. And I expected it to be more about quantum computing than I, I think actually was. So um, it was very satisfying, but by the same token, I would like him to make another film that deals with the exact same <laughs> subject that picks up on all the rest of the stuff um, that uh, I was sort of waiting to drop. It's, a, it's an interesting problem. Um, and I will also say when we get to the visual effects, this is a Dean Egg um, uh, film, and they did the uh, visual effects on the show. And what's interesting is Dean Egg, time and time again, if you think about it, has come up with these uh, issues of producing visual effects around something that's actually quite intellectual, yeah. quite science-based science fiction. So from, uh, you know, 
the films that you already mentioned, which obviously were done at Deneg, like uh, Ex Machina, um, but uh, Interstellar, you know, a bunch Interstellar being an, an absolute classic point. They have um, a team of R and D and TDs that are clever enough in their own right to be able to relate to the physicists and scientists that are the technical advisors on these programs to interpret the tech in a way that is not um, insulting to anyone that understands the tech, or in my case, doesn't understand it fully, but has, has, a, has a vague clue about it. Um, so it's, it's a really engaging thing to see that it's not just, uh, you know, fantasy level science fiction, but there's actually, now, of course, nothing like devs exists, but it's in these various films that they've done, and and there's actually quite a few of them, if you think about it. Um, Deneg has managed to come up with this very plausible, very interesting and rich visual language that mm -hmm. isn't just, um, you know, like, you know, there's some patronizing science fiction when it's like, yeah, yeah, that's just the geeky stuff and I don't care about it. You know, insert geek garble here, who cares? Yeah. Um, and and I think that's that's so disappointing, especially as the audience that likes science fiction tends to be an audience that, you know, is probably into that stuff. And so, you know, it's, it's a really a huge mistake, I think, to, to write off the value that you give, the richness that you give to the experience when you pay some attention to not being or not disregarding the actual science involved in science fiction. Well, that's, I mean, that's the classic, you know, model and should be for everyone of don't disrespect your audience. Treat your audience yeah. like they're smart. You'd better, you're better off confusing them slightly with things they don't understand than patronizing the audience and treating them like third graders, you know, when they're fifth graders. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I would say that Annihilation, I, like I think of the films he's done, that was my least favorite. Like I think that yeah. uh, it was maybe because he didn't write it, maybe it's just because of the nature of the subject matter. Mm -hmm. um, Ex Machina, of course, won the Academy Award for visual effects for Deneg. Um, right. And at the time, it was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it, Matt? It wasn't necessarily yeah. the, the one that we thought was going to win. Yeah, I think it wasn't the big bombastic uh, movie of the year that had the you remember what the films were it was up against i'd have to go and look at the uh that year's uh, list of uh films but i i yeah i seem to remember uh yeah it was a surprise win but it was one that you know upon reflection looking back on it i do feel like um as effects that service the story and service the story in a really primary way um you know uh, the the work in that film was so top notch. I mean, it's it all his films, the whether it's Ex Machina, Annihilation, or I guess Devs, which isn't really a film, although I mean it kind of is. I, I don't. Its distribution is different, but it's uh, certainly a high production value uh, uh, miniseries. I mean, I, the only difference probably is length and maybe depth of uh, narrative structure, um, in that it goes a little deeper. I think, but. Uh, his visual style and the cohesiveness of the production design and mm -hmm. uh, cinematography and the execution of, uh, uh, and the sort of world building that's going on, I think in all of his work is very sophisticated. Um, and I think, you know, Ex Machina in its, in its, um, inception and execution, the choice of that particular location, 
um, which I think was a hotel in Sweden or something like that, if memory serves. Um, the the place that is oh the, yeah, uh, the the guy's house. Uh, what's Oscar his name? Oscar Isaac. Uh, Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaacs. Yeah, and um, yeah, I just think um, you know, it was one of those ones where, uh, looking back on it, I think that uh, it's great that it wound up winning that the Oscar that year for visual effects because it's and just. Just to tell you why mm. I would be that way about it not necessarily being the obvious choice is it was up against Mad Max Fury Road, which was the one that I was very strongly right. pushing for because yeah. it's an Australian. Uh, but also, interestingly, uh, the Reverend Star Wars Force Awakens and The Martian. And I mention it because The Martian is another film that paid right. uh, really strong respect to the science of, you know, otherwise obviously a pretty fanciful story. Um, but... Well, what a great, great plausible uh, kind year of project. four great films. Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah. all those effects and all four of those are just so top shelf. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and of course, it's credit to the DNEG team that they won in that group. Uh, yeah. Because it certainly was uh, just about as competitive as you're going to get. Andrew Whitehurst won the visual effects Oscar representing um, DNEG at that point. And he is, of course, the visual effects advisor also on uh, devs. And, uh, and, and second so, unit director too, right? Yeah, so just uh, obviously a long collaboration with Alex and uh, those long collaborations, I'm sure you could agree with me. When you see those, uh, when somebody's worked with the same director time and time again, you really get a sense that um, that they sort of speak the same language and have managed to sort of foster a, an aesthetic that yeah. works uh, inside that kind of commercial constraint. So to, to that point, Absolutely. I watched uh, like a BTS thing or something they had on the channel there. Um or maybe it was online actually on YouTube and it, it pushed that entire point. It was like his producer, the DP, the art director, uh, visual effects supervisor, like so many people on his crew, you know, they were like, we've worked with Alex for years. So when I want to show him something, he gives me the freedom and he trusts me and I trust him. So when he says, Hey, I want to do this. And while I'm working on it, I don't have to go, well, I can't deviate from the director's vision. I can say, well, I've taken his idea. I've applied my, you know, my vision to it as well. And when I go back and show it to him, he, um, whether he accepts the exactly what I did or not, he is, re you know, respectful of what I've done and he'll take pieces of what he likes of what I've done, which seems logical, but I, there's not a lot of people that do that. Um, maybe with every department. Uh, I mean, a lot of people do, obviously, you know, people like Scorsese and, and, uh, Tarantino, they work with the same actors over and over for the same reason, right? They want to shorthand with that person. They just show up and they know what to do. Um, um, but I, they made a very specific point of that, uh, in this piece, this BTS piece. And I, and I thought that was, um, really nice of them to make because he can be off doing his thing and extensions of him that really understand him and what he wants are moving through time and space to bring him back, you know, mirror versions of what, you know, he asked for maybe better, maybe worse, but certainly, you know, with thought. That's a great point. Yeah. I think it, it, it also brings to mind to me like that it's the difference between, you know, kind of the old school notion of a, of a studio director versus yes. someone like this, who's a writer director and who, yeah, has built a, you know, a, a cadre, a team um, that uh, clearly uh, there's a, a sense of um, collaboration, a great sense of collaboration and 
uh, you know, working with the same people over and over again, clearly it's, they fostered a great working relationship and created something that, um, you know, people are interested in coming back to again and again, because mm -hmm. the work is, you know, of a high quality. Before we get into and, the visual effects, we, oh, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, rounding that out, like um, we mentioned earlier, Inception uh, or in, uh, Interstellar, but Christopher Nolan has worked uh, with Paul Franklin yeah. uh, many mm -hmm. times, you know, since Dark Knight, Paul being one of the founders of uh, DNEG. And so there's a, there's a strong, you know, culture in that uh, DNEG VFX supervision relationship with directors that uh, goes... And I want to also underline that another film I should have mentioned earlier when I was pointing to Dean Egg's tradition of coming up with these great science, uh, faithful kind of science fiction also extends to the work that they've done in other films like First Man, which um, also was, you know, very sort of scientifically valid uh, film and again, uh, won the Oscar. Uh, so that, you know, there's a good culture there. Yeah. And, and. Before we get into visual effects, I'd really like to talk about the production design because it was stellar. Mm -hmm. Like, like even with if there were no visual effects in this and it was just supported by production design, it would still be as good. Um, yeah. The all the you know work in the locations and and the um, production design. I guess we can say spoiler alert because if you've gotten this far, you know we haven't really said much, but we're obviously going to. Um, you know, the, the production design of the giant Bob's big boy kind of thing of her, of his daughter, uh, the big statue to the, um, all the logos and all the like signage all the way to obviously the devs, um, location, the building, the mirror pylons outside. And of course the big, um, hand hammered brass you know, looking, uh, uh, cube, cube within a cube. Um, you know, I, I just think it, it, it was all so well thought out and executed and visually communicative, uh, that when you went into, when he went into the, to the, when the main character went into devs in the first episode or second episode, um, no, you know, the audience hadn't been there before, neither had Sergey, the character. Yet when you walk in and Nick Offerman, who was amazing in this, is is talking, at no point did I feel confused or like, where am I? Like I it everything had that familiar yet different kind of, you know, George Lucas rule kind of scenario, you know, make everything very, you know, close to familiar, but just just a little different, right? There's still computers, but they're modified. There's, you know, a control center that could be like a server room, but it's just, you know, uh, futuristic, you know, even, even the, once they get into the devs, you know, quantum room and they get it working, I mean, they're just using an iPad app. They don't explain how the app works. There's no exposition. They just, they know how to do it and you see stuff coming on screen. And of course, the actual, which we'll get to the visual effect of the quantum reconstruction and whatever, all, all of that just felt natural. You, at no point did you have to be explained of what they're doing. You just sort of understood where they were and what they were doing, which is obviously, you know, kudos to the team involved. Yeah. Mark Digby was the visual, uh, was the production designer on that stuff. And he was production designer on Ex Machina. And there was a lot, as we'll get into a lot of 
Easter eggs there of fractal patterns and references to um, mathematics that were just a joy to behold. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And can I just add one other thing? As much as I think that production design was spectacularly good in gives visual authenticity, I actually thought the casting was really good in visual authenticity in the sense that these people looked like they could be programmers, not pretty people that looked like, you know, gap models that I've never yeah, in movies ever believed would be programmers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Casting was great. Yeah, I totally agree. And I was just going to add too to what uh, Jason was saying that I think too the other thing about this that I I really loved and it's just I I just have to mention is um, I lived in San Francisco. I went to college in San Francisco and lived there for probably sixteen or seventeen years, I guess. And um, I it's this is probably one of maybe three or four things that I've seen where I felt like they really captured uh, the city of San Francisco in a way that felt really, um, to people who've lived there for a long time, it just, it felt correct. It felt real. It was, it reminded me of um, uh, one of the other ones being Francis Ford Coppola's uh, 1974 movie, I think, The Conversation, mm -hmm. um, right. which is also all shot in San Francisco, another great uh, sort of Bay Area film. But I think seeing San Francisco in this way as sort of the, this hub of, uh, you know, uh, Silicon Valley tech, uh, the tech universe and the sort of the bus, you know, commuter bus taking you to and from the, uh, the valley back to the city and then, uh, you know, the apartments and the, the streets and the, the, the homeless guy uh, who winds up maybe not being a homeless guy on the front, uh, the front porch of the... Um, uh, the apartment building that, uh, they live in, I don't know, all that stuff I thought was so great. And even the, the art direction of the place you were talking about, Jason, the, the sort of devs place too. I think there's also a lot of, um, kind of, uh, religious, uh, touchstones in there too, where it almost oh, like sure. it has a church, a church like, yeah. um, uh, feel to it. Well, like it's, uh, those feels like rings around of... the trees gave halos yeah. to many characters in many shots. Yeah. So. Yep. And those, those rings were amazing and practical, they were. which was great. Yeah. I was going to ask you, do, do you know much about um, Rob Hardy, the cinematographer? I and mean, obviously he was the cinematographer on uh, previous things like Annihilation and uh, Ex Machina. But uh, Jason, are you, you familiar with his work more than he, that? I, I am. I'm looking him up real quick on my phone here because I have, I know I've looked him up before and uh, I'm pretty sure the guy is a beast. I mean, 41... 41 movies uh he's shot i'm i'm just scrolling through his uh his cuz he was here. on mission impossible right like uh, uh is it... yeah i i'm i'm hold on i'm at 2011 real quick he did a sink Sigur Ross <laughs> Sigur Ross thing i think the first ex machina was sort of i mean not to throw shade on any of his previous work but that seems to be where he his his taking off point uh, in 2014. Um, but, um, yeah, Annihilation, he did Fallout, Mission Impossible, uh, That's one, yeah. which is a beautifully shot movie. And then of course, devs. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, beautiful work, uh, anamorphic, uh, it seemed to me, um, I know I'm pretty sure Ex Machina is anamorphic and so was, I don't know if Fallout was, I can't remember. I think it might've been um but yeah i mean beautifully shot 
um, the so the nat the lighting was so natural in most of the scenarios, especially in her apartment. All that sort of diffused light through the curtains and everything. Very uh, those windows and everything. To your point, Matt, it's, it, that apartment was so San Francisco. And it looked sure. over the that little park, and it had you know, <clears throat> it really felt like you were there. Um, having been in San Francisco a fair bit myself, um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, nothing, nothing felt like it was dramatic, but it nothing ever felt like forcibly lit uh, to me. Which was and it which did have all, that which, real diff, that diffuse kind of slightly muted grade yeah. too uh yeah color palette wise but yeah i mean it's just super impressive across the board in terms of the the visual language and uh and yeah the photography the cinematography i thought was just so um uh it added so much to the overall um i think story points but the emotive uh elements too uh, that's one of the knocks that i've heard people say about uh alex garland's films and about his work is that um they people have said that they seem sort of emotionless. Um, and I think that's a, a relatively fair uh, critique, but I do think that there's, um, they make up for uh, maybe some of those, the lack of um, uh, depth of emotion in some of the characters, uh, in, at least for me, in the, in the depth of uh, narrative construction. Like there's so many interesting um, uh in this, particularly in this allegorical, philosophical kind of, you know, things about free will and determinism, you know, and kind of getting into this exploration of, of what uh, the implications of the development of this type of system, like what does that mean, um, were something like that uh, real? But in terms of that emotional stuff, one of the things I thought was really interesting in this film or the show is the audio, especially the opening audio that would happen at the start of the episode. There were, there were episodes that had like just incredibly emotionally charged audio. It was very mm -hmm. front of, of, you know, of house. It wasn't sort of a, a laid in underneath kind of thing, really um, set kind of your yeah. sense of tension or whatever for otherwise relatively ordinary shots of cities, streets and stuff. And yet the audio was like just out there. Uh, and it was interesting because I, I found that gave it a lot of almost... Um, emotional weight you know it, was, it, it built tension but it also yeah. just this sort of eerie kind of weird um, and by the way the, the frequency of it set my daughter off yeah there were there was an episode i forget which one it was that started with this like an audio collage like almost merch yeah you know early 70s merch style collage oh right uh, audio collage okay. although i'm gonna say um i thought five through eight were stronger than one through four in just maybe yep. because it ramped up, but five episode five opened and closed with one of my favorite bands. And for you, Mike, an Australian band, uh, free with a song called, Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I wept, <laughs> which is one of my favorite songs. And when that episode kicked on, I was like, what? You know, I was just like, yes. <laughs> and then when they closed with it too, I was like, yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I loved, I loved the, the sort of, um, thematic open and closing, sort of things they did they didn't i don't believe any episode ever just jumped in there was always like a, this kind of thematic in, thematic easing in uh and out of the episodes yeah so let's talk about the visual effects mm -hmm. um the one that 
that certainly had me leapt off. I leapt off my couch. Was the uh, car crash? Like when oh, that yeah. car crash happened, I was like, I mean, I guess I could have worked out that something was going to happen then from the way that it was, you know, in the story. But everything was a bit weird at that point. You know, you weren't quite sure what was going on. And then uh, the the mother and the daughter dying was, mm-hmm. and then and then it goes into this uh, this sort of multiverse uh, interpretation of life uh, otherwise not lived, and it just all seemed so effortless and yet so impactful. Um, it, it wasn't so much the visuals themselves stood out the way some of the visuals around the Deb's building were just you know gorgeous to look at these were just really good yet as i say effortless kind of uh effects um probably not the most obvious uh, the most uh subtle i mean you know it's been done before splits sort of uh into multiple paths with multiple people doing multiple things and certainly it happened again like the uh the falling off the uh dam but i th- i thought it worked well what, what do you guys think i i loved it i mean i'm all, i'm all about multiverse stuff so like um that's why i thought five through eight kind of and it's probably mostly because of that they started to visually, you know, show what they've been talking about as they really um, get into what Devs is doing with the quantum sort of projections and uh, forecasting, or even uh, looking in the past. Um, the was, which episode was the start of the dead animal on the plinth? I I I want to say it's five. But yeah, because that's when I was like leaning in heavy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it might be six though, actually, because that that I think it might be six. Five ends with her on the couch, but her all over the apartment. That that was like her multiverse moving, you know, all the different yep, right. things through the apartment. Um, but yeah, him and and I think this goes back to what we were talking about with uh, Ex Machina. Um, and even specifically with devs of the, um, with what we said about the production design, but from a visual effects standpoint, the visual effects never seemed to be affecty in terms of they were like, we weren't there for a wow factor. The, the car crash is telling us how she died. And we didn't really know that because you, uh, mm. I thought up to that point only his daughter had died. I didn't know his wife also died, unless I'm yes. just not remembering that. But I don't believe no, no, that was given away. So not only are you learning more about his life, which is further deepening the character, even though he himself is somewhat emotionless um, about it. Um, in that moment, you know his emotion is brought to the forefront, and you're 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 visualizing it. And I thought it was a beautiful use of the multiverse concept for him and showing that basically that's his driving force, right? That explains why he's doing devs um, for to try and work out the deterministic nature of why that happened and how he could get back to his, his daughter in some capacity, but also, um, you know, just visual storytelling at its finest because it's, it's communicating everything. I don't, don't believe there's any dialogue in that scene. You know, what I mean, he's just walking or running, and when he gets to the intersection, it's all those different things happening, you know, at once. And sure, you could critique, you know, the way cars might have stopped a little jankily or thing, you know, like there's, there's, you could get into minutia of of physics of the the vehicles, you know, in the cross section or the 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 intersection there, but but the storytelling was so strong 
that it didn't matter uh, if there were as anything, if at all. I mean, we're talking like, you know, minutia on minutia here. I'm, I'm just uh, throwing, uh, not trying to, not trying to throw shade, you know what I mean? But <laughs> yeah, but, no, but I think that's a key thing about why it, it works so well too, because it, 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 up until that moment, at least with the, the, um, the Nick Offerman character, like he's a fairly prior to that moment, we don't really know like what's his deal. He seems like a pretty cold calculating, uh, you know, kind of a, a dark figure. Yeah. And it's the first time that we have a window into, um, like a real window into like his, the deeper motivations behind some of his, his mania. Um, and he, we see him as in a flashback as an almost normal kind of guy. Like he actually, he looks different even. He looks so much more, um, awake. Uh, that's one of the things yeah. I thought was so interesting throughout the show is he looks so like he's been up for like weeks, you know, and hasn't yeah. slept in forever, his eyes and just sort of the, the blankness of his stare. And I think that that, uh, sequence, which I, I thought was really well executed. I love seeing sort of the different trajectories and, and paths of, um, you know, potential, uh, you know, other universes where, uh, this didn't happen and, or, or yeah. something else occurred. And I thought that it was so well done and it, it provided us this really interesting window through the mechanism of story and to help flesh out and build out further character. Um, you know, I mean, it's just such a, again, just like we were talking about with Ex Machina, it's just such a great, brilliant, integrated use of visual effects that are all in service of story and character, like on the most fundamental level. Yeah, I think I think the car crash is episode four because I think five is when we go back in time to the university lecture, um, and we get the oh, same yeah. effect happening on the steps of the university coming out. Yeah. Um, yep. And again, it it you know it worked really well. Um, what we haven't discussed is the actual devs building and yeah. uh, sort of the nature of of that setup. So let's shift gears there for a second. That's some set extension, obviously, some major CG work. Um, but the principle that you meant to take out of it is that this thing is suspended in isolation from everything else. Um, and in a the, vacuum, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, in a vacuum. Yeah. And there is here, like, obviously, you know, um, some basis in fact, which is certainly at Sydney University, where I am, uh, there's a quantum uh, team and they had to stop using the elevator in the building. Uh, because the vibration that the elevator caused uh, was enough to cause uh, noise in the in the um, what is effectively almost analog to you to use an analogy the quantum computer is almost analog because it uh, can suffer from noise from vibration and stuff that all made sense to me and then they lay it on top of this sort of plausible isolation thing this massively art directed sort of love letter to fractals which yeah. I thought made the building look just really cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I would have liked to have addressed the fact that nearly all quantum computers require very, very cold things. And I was sort of like waiting for a couple of things there. And I was waiting for some science stuff because I would have loved for them to get into entanglement and some of the really cool stuff that happens with uh, quantum particles. But um, they also avoided, I don't know if you noticed, a few like uh, scientific 
touch points. They, they were, somebody asked how many uh, qubits it was. They were like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's so many that it's not worth counting kind of thing. It was like, <laughs> we're not going to tell you because we, we know IBM's up to 53. So we're just not going to pretend how many, uh, you know, there really are. Um, but yeah, the, the qubits and, and that structure existed in a uh, lovely kind of cage where obviously it really needed to exist in a, you know, almost uh, absolute zero temperature. But hey, what the heck? Um, it it looked good, and if you didn't know what was going on, you um, you know, had a belief that it was sort of plausible tech. But it then was nice. I thought that that came back as a major point in what was presumably episode eight, right, when the uh, mm -hmm. the lift collapsed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, also, the lighting was very um, um, was very um, Blade Runner. The sort of sweeping light across the 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 brass outer structure walls, and there was always light kind of moving. Uh, if you were out near and pulsing, if you were out, you know, out of uh, out of the room, you know, the 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 devs quantum room, um, which is which is always nice to have, you know, have have textures changing and looking like they're sort of undulating, even though it's just light passing you know, that, that hand hammered kind of look, um, run me of like they were inside a big snare drum or something. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it kind of, it kind of removed, I think it, I mean, it looked like you know, the inside of like some fancy, like, uh, you know, Danish hotel lobby or something <laughs> in, in some ways, you know, like, but it, but I do think that that, that color and then the sort of the large scale of the indentations that were sort of uh, mm -hmm. like the way you sort of described looking at it, it almost looked like it's you know pounded uh uh you know copper walls or something i think that that the scale of it also it sort of had this um otherworldly and kind of dehumanizing effect it didn't look like a place that was necessarily welcoming uh yeah. to the human animal right it was it was all uh this space and this place that was clearly in service to this you know machine god you know this kind of uh scientific marvel of of uh you know quantum <laughs> quantum states of matter quantum computing whatever yeah and the computer itself you know i i i've only seen a couple uh you know pictures online of um you know, different quantum computers. And I, I don't, I haven't done much uh, study or research uh, into that area, but I, to me, it looked like such an interesting, almost like an antiquated uh, device. It looked like something kind of from some steampunk era, mm -hmm. like a steampunk and, and that's what it actually machine is. or something. Yeah. You know? Google it. That's what the, the, uh, you know, that, because obviously you don't see them like that because they're encased in uh, refrigeration units. But yeah, if you look mm. inside one, um, it's uh it's extraordinary but but here's the thing like that's that's a classic case of like saying okay well that's what these things are it's really unique and then i just felt like they inherited that color palette from the device which is from the scientifically valid right uh inside workings which you know just all worked really really well but of course the one that isn't uh anywhere based in science is this reconstruction that happens first from the uh, dead animal on the plinth and then um, is happening on the screens, as you were referring to earlier, controlled yeah. or called up by the um, the iPad control. So again, I don't know that that is a wholly original idea, kind of forming it up from a point cloud of sort of dusty type particles, but this actual DNA implementation of it, 
worked so well, I thought. I I think the concept of the point cloud um, is for anyone who's like a VFX person seems like a no brainer, right? Cause you're like, Oh, volumetric, you know, reconstruction, you know, your brain automatically goes, Oh, okay. Point clouds, scans, you know, lasers and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but to the untrained or, or non, you know, industry person, it still makes sense because a point cloud still is a representation of something. When you see um, this amorphous mass of, of data uh, swirling around and, and, and coalescing into something, uh, uh, I think you just said sand, you know, may reference the sand, Mike, uh, you know, people have ha understand that again, it is a visually, it was a visual language and as it, as they, you know, they were also the, 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 the characters were learning about it as the audience was. So the characters yeah. weren't walking in and going, Hey, push button a to see, you know, viewport B or whatever, you know, tech talk. And everyone goes, what are they doing? I don't understand what's happening. They're like, wait, what's happening? Oh, is that Jesus? Is that a dinosaur? Is that a whatever? And so as you're discovering it with them, it makes the sort of amorphous nature of the point cloud become uh discoverable which is you know from a visual language perspective exactly what you want and then of course later it gets it gets so good that it basically looks like you know film or video or halated you know whatever but um but that makes sense right because as they get better the audience gets more experience looking at it understanding it knowing what devs is understanding the concepts and then you know as it gets better, the audience knows more. So do the characters. It, it all makes sense logically from a development standpoint. And uh, I, I thought it was great, especially the Jesus one, which was super grainy. It almost yeah. had, because it was old, it had like a newsreel kind of black and white, kind of, you know, not exactly the thing you want that you would see later, um, which is perfect because it's so old, uh, you know, 2020 years old that it would it your untrained brain would go it should be old you know what i mean if it just looked perfect yeah. you'd go that i don't believe it but it's it's like dialing in a staticky radio you know channel or something yeah yeah i thought too the the use i mean exactly as you're saying i mean i i really thought too the use of the the uh the particles in the early sort of uh visualizations that we get that we're privy to of the you know a christ on the cross or whatever you know and some of those early sort of um, when he's looking at his daughter. And I actually thought some of that stuff was so interesting um, because it, it really tapped back. It, it, it was, it's a visual language and visual effects that I think we're, we're as visual effects artists, we're all pretty accustomed to. We've seen, you know, so many different, uh, you know, early stage particle sims and stuff like that, where, you, you know, you kind of get that sort of aesthetic of, uh, you know, points or whatever, as opposed to, you know, whatever, um, uh, geometry you use to replace uh, position in a in a sim, and seeing some of that, and then thinking about the the some of the sciency things they're talking about, which I'm not as uh, steeped in, maybe as uh, the writers are certainly people who are working with these machines, but the idea of you know quantum states of matter and uh, this sort of superposition of quantum particles, and this idea of determinism, and if you're able to sort of understand at a molecular level like the position of of uh 
you know, molecule X, uh, and you can actually then uh, mathematically calculate and go back and understand the position of, you know, all these different pieces way back in time or forward in the future and, and predict where they will be or where they used to be. And that idea that uh, as they're developing this tool and starting to visualize stuff, they're only able to see things in a certain way. Uh, and it's very fuzzy and has that almost kind of, like you said, that kind of newsreel kind of quality or less less than that fidelity. And it's only through uh, the development and the sort of breakthrough of using a different uh, theory or a different postulate that suggests that there's a multiverse that then they're able to sort of break through the, find the signal in the noise, but then it's whether or not is it the signal that we want to see or is it some other signal, you know? And I, I thought, I found all that just so fascinating. And that device, uh, again, as a, as a visual effect was such a, um, it felt like such a smart choice that again, it explained visually so much of like a, in a layman's way, some of the tech that was kind of, uh, you know, in the, the, the essence of the story itself. So it's somewhat ironic that the whole principle is determinism and being able to determine things with huge amounts of accuracy. And the one thing that you can't do in quantum uh, states is determine something state, right? Like it's... Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a, and, and uh, yeah, and, you know, obviously like walks away from science in a pretty big way, but it, it gets us there. Because, I mean, you can't get there all the way with the audience in one jump because you just wouldn't either know what you're looking at or you just wouldn't care what you're looking at or it wouldn't make no sense. Um, so I think it was great that we got there the way that, that you described. Um, Matt, I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on your point about the religious iconography, because one of the things that I thought was so, I mean, apart from the gag that's going to be revealed in episode six about the name of the whole show, mm -hmm. yeah. um, I thought that what was really interesting is that when you look at it in light of that reference to God and, and, um, mm -hmm. and a sort of supreme, uh, being, their behavior in the rooms when viewing these uh, particle pieces and later full video is very much like somebody sitting in a chapel. It's uh, the yeah. seats are yeah. kind of like not um, big comfy desks with computers on them. They're, you know, a, they're it's sitting. It's a bench, like a pew. Yeah, almost. like a pew, exactly. And they have a reverence about what they're looking at, a quietness in their tone that you, you know, you won't walk into a, a church and start yelling to a mate. You know, there's a, there's a, decor that sort of, and I just, but you were, you were, I think, referring it not so much in terms of that, but just the art direction, weren't you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think both. I mean, I do feel like, yeah, the, the sort of, the, the joke of the title being, you know, uh, what is it, a, a Roman uh, V in Dev, so it's, you know, de, Deus, right? Like, um, yep. there, and therein lies the companion to Ex Machina, right? <laughs> through the title. And I yeah. think actually through many, many of the ideas I think are, are shared across uh, both projects. But um, I think, it, you know, the, the free will and determinism question that uh, is presented, which to me is the, is the deepest and most uh, kind of uh, really juicy part of the science fiction of this that I just love. It sort of gets into this thing of you know, I, I think I read an interview uh, with Alex Garland afterwards where he was talking about, um, you know, the the sort of uh, the paradox of Christianity, uh, the stories in Christianity, the idea that if God is uh, all seeing and all knowing uh, and 
knows, you know, everything that ever is and everything that ever will be, uh, that the story of Adam and Eve uh, is the really interesting story, um, paradoxically, and that if uh, that were true, and that uh, God then in turn creates uh, Adam and Eve, and in the very act of creating uh, Eve, he's aware of the fact that she will, you know, take a bite of the apple and thus, you know, uh, the uh, what original sin or whatever, uh, then is it really her choice, right? Is she really making that choice um, to stray? Uh, is he granting her that choice? But doesn't he know that she'll make that choice? And I think that, you know, those aspects of the narrative and actually that story of Adam and Eve, you, you could make the case that that is um, part of what this uh, story on a, on a meta level is replicating again. And I think that that um, all those components of that type of uh, iconogra iconography, uh, that kind of, uh, like you say, Mike, that sense of reverence they have when they're in that space, and the use of uh, sound and the, the removal of sound uh, from certain spaces too, even um, the choice of having one of the first images that we see on the screen be the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ, I think, you know, it, it really reinforces uh, that within the context of the story um, uh, and that those are sort of the, the bigger questions that the, the filmmaker and the writer uh, in this case are, are dealing with. And I think it, those are the questions that we're being asked to sort of ponder um, through the lens of, of technology, the, the use of the term Messiah too, that, um, uh, you know, our, all the tech gods think they're like, or all the tech giants, yeah. they think they're like messiahs. And I think that that becomes, um, really interesting. And it's really interesting in, in, uh, yeah, in just looking at our current moment, um, as a, as a, you know, as a society, as a global society, um, I, I just thought all that stuff was so, so rich and it's, you know, it's on the page and it's on the screen for sure. Well, to your point also at the end, Nick Offerman, who is the character who is they consider or, or is that that comment is made about he, that he thinks he's a Messiah gets to a part of the end of the story where he knows he will be killed, which is his sacrifice for the larger good, blah, 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 you know, pairing with obviously the story of Jesus and then, and, and her, and the two of them are technically reborn in the afterlife of sorts where they are mm -hmm. gods. In the simulation. And they are gods. <laughs> they know what's going on and no one else does. Right. And well, he says and that so he, gra he granted her the gift. Uh, right. He granted them yes. too the gift of memory that they remember. Right. So he is both he is both God and Adam, and she's Eve for all intents and purposes. If you want to look at it that way, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's so rich. It's great. So like, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So and I didn't actually even think about that until you were talking, and I was thinking about that part of the, you know, narrative. But at a simpler level, also, as much as that's a rich vein to discuss, there's also, it's basically a time travel show without time travel. Right, because that's the the you know the the conundrum placed uh, on um, you know the character when she discovers that she will go to devs 
And she's like, well, all we have to do is not go. And as the audience, that's that kind of time travel thing. It's like, well, hang on. We know that she's going to go. What could possibly happen that would make her go? Because she just has to stay in her apartment and she won't go. Right. You know, like right. as, a, as a writer, I love, as, sorry, as a viewer, I love it when the writer is clever and sets that you know, challenge for themselves, which is you as the audience go, well, yeah, just stay in the room. There's no reason to leave. You know, and you say to yourself, why could she possibly leave? And of course, five minutes later in the show, you're like, get out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you go, it makes oh, perfect right, sense that she'd she now leave. go there. Right. But they did yeah. drive the whole thing about free will where, where they couldn't see past yeah. a certain point. And, and, you know, um, what's his name? The, the, the programmer, the older programmer uh, guy, you know, basically gives them the same, you know, ending they would have had. Uh, Stuart, isn't? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. You know, um, much to Allison Pill, uh, Katie's, you know, um, uh, dismay. Um, well, because yeah. free will is just an illusion. Exactly. Or is uh, it? Um, <laughs> and, and just to go back to that multiverse, you know, thing they did that, they did that with her twice, you know, once on the steps and once at the bridge after um, the kid falls. At, at, at the dam? At yeah. the dam, rather. Yeah. Um, and I I personally love that that visual, um, sort of the, the visual nature of all the possibilities that, you know, and certainly, it's certainly not all of them because they're infinite, but um, her, you know, whatever they determined to show, you know, 10 or whatever it is, um, is really, um, and they kind of show that really there's only one choice, right? Like it, it, even though she goes in a bunch of ways, she very clearly, at least the way that she goes and that follows and, and keeps the story going is in whatever, you know, branch of the multiverse we happen to see you know, the show happens to stay observing, if you want to think of it that yeah. way. I didn't say this earlier, and I should have, but can I just, a complete aside, one thing I found delightful in this is the character of Pete, the homeless guy. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. when he comes and saves her, he just speaks so eloquently, so quietly, such a, you know, a reserved, like that actor played Looney Tune and then suddenly yeah. on a yeah. dime... <laughs> plays Russian, but not like anyone else would play Russian. He plays him like this sort of almost reserved, gentle, he's just murdered or defended, yeah. I guess, killed somebody. And yet he's got this air of like intelligent, um, understanding, uh, you know, it's just so uh, not what I expected. And, yeah. and it's not a big role, but man, is it, uh, I think I'm looking it up now. It's Jefferson Hall played Pete. Man, that dude just knocked it out of the park. And even, and when he shows up, you're like, oh, that makes sense, right? Like you're not yes. surprised by it, but it's so well handled that you don't feel like you were, you saw a plot point that came in that you were sort of unimpressed by. Um, because, you know, if you, if you think about it throughout the, throughout the show and you kind of, you know, recall his, it all makes sense that he would be, that he's there and he talks to this guy and he talks to that guy and he, you know, he's sort of observing everything and nobody pays attention to the homeless guy. So it's the perfect. There was one foil. mega clue though. Kenton, the head of security outside says, 
has a dialogue with him briefly and he says, uh, I'm not afraid of you. And he goes, yes, I can tell that. I'm just not sure why. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, hey, that's an interesting line. And of course, yeah. you know. <clears throat> yeah. The but you have to do that, right? You have, was... to, you have to, to get the payoff, you have to lay it out properly. You have to give us those yeah, things. Yeah, of course. So that when the payout comes out later, you don't go, well, yeah. hang on, that's just super convenient that he happened to be a Russian agent. Yeah. Um, I love yeah. the casting in this, though. I love the main uh, oh. character, uh, the Lily, uh, Sun what is it, Sonoya? Sonoya? Yeah. Mizuno, yeah. Uh, who was also in Ex Machina, but also uh, Jamie, the, the ex-boyfriend. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Was he was great. Awesome. He was so, such a great uh, presence on screen. It's so fun to watch and. Um, and even, uh, I, I guess I'd seen her in other things, uh, but the Alison Pill, uh, oh, yeah. the Katie character, yeah, such oh, an I interesting, thought, yeah, strange looking, uh, character, but she's such a, um, really compelling presence on screen and, and such a great partner in crime to the, the Forrest character, the Nick Offerman character, like yeah. the two of them together make a really, uh, frightening and disturbing yeah. duo. You know? She was in uh, Newsroom, the Sorkin show on HBO. Yeah, oh, that's right. But she was yeah. also in one of Mike's favorite but, movies, Scott Pilgrim, as the drummer. Uh, she was also <laughs> in Star Trek Picard, which oh, I, I would happily do a... What? I know, I have to watch it. <laughs> what? <laughs> you kidding me? I had a friend who was, who was not excited about it, so I... I uh, I will take your. Uh, I'm sorry. I will take your your I'm opinion sorry. as the foil to his. And if you ever watched, I will if you watch ever it. watched Star Trek: Next Generation, of course, of it, course, it was just a love letter to people that liked Trek. Yeah. and it was done not as a greatest hits. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it's good. Always, it was um, good. I, I agree. I watched the whole thing. I thought it was. It's and I just. It's so great to see Patrick Stewart and the other actors uh, that they brought yeah. into that show. I thought yeah, uh, for it. the most part were all pretty solid. It was fun. And by the way, Very like I loved in Picard when they don't have him suddenly at his age being able to fist punch yeah. out, you know, twenty three year olds. Like at one point he's like, I can't get up these stairs. Yeah. And it's like yeah, he's a total yes, he's thank a total you. geezer in the yeah. in the in the proper yeah. sense of the word. But we di diverge. So going back to the to the um to the visual effects for a second, just to sort of close out things. Um what did you feel about the creative decisions around including or not including visual effects in the whole you're in the matrix um, kind of thing? Because by that point, have they earned the right to just have that as a, somebody's walking around on, on a clear location in the real world? It didn't, you know, like it, did you feel, wait a second, I'm robbed or? I thought it was great because I actually think that it, it connected uh, the entire thing that we've been discussing, the sort of, you know, the religious implications of a multiverse and quantum states and, you know, kind of, and then the sort of free will determinism, but it connected it back to this other thing that is also quite popular in, you know, tech circles, the sort of notion of simulation theory, right? Like whether or not yeah. we're all living in a simulation. And so I thought it kind of tied it back into that concept at the end in a way that, um, that I thought was really cool because it, it shifted gears while at the same time connecting that notion and that concept to, um, you know, world religions too, in a way, like in the kind of, for me, I mean, it, I felt like it created this interesting bridge, uh, at least that I'd never really thought about between those two um, 
kind of uh, philosophical or, um, or, or religious kind of notions of the nature of reality. And I, I found that so fascinating that in the end, he is God, right? He's God well, of the simulation, you know? <laughs> well, also to your point about determinism and free will is, you know, in order to close out Nick Offerman's character's arc, you know, he either ends up with his daughter or he doesn't. In this case, you know, they close out his arc where he both dies and loses the ability to further his study and maybe, do, you know, taking that technology somewhere else. But he also then becomes the technology and is able to spend the time with his daughter and his wife that he really wouldn't otherwise, no matter how far he got the simulation, right? So there's that for his. And then for... Yep. And then for uh, her character, um, she actually has free will in the simulation because she goes to Jamie. And, you know, she's with Sergey, but he says, you know what happens. You can make the choice. So she, even though she's in a simulation, in, she has the choice and she goes and hugs Jamie, you know, in that moment where you're assuming, you know, she's not going to be with Sergey and she's going to go back to Jamie. Mm -hmm which she didn't do given the choice initially only under duress. And now she's making that choice because she realized that's the choice she wanted to make and she gets a second chance. So, so it's almost, it, it's paradoxical in and of itself because she now basically has free will because she knows what's happening and can make decisions based on informed, you know, based on information. So it's like, it's well, and it, and it, but, and it doesn't look like the matrix. It works so well like for the audience, looks, right? It, it, it looks like our world, yeah. but I think the yeah. other thing that's really interesting is there's a maintenance of the fragility of our world in that there's that sort of uh, like that kind of coda where they go back to uh, the Allison Pill character and she's yeah. watching uh, them yep. in the simulation. Right. And yep. she's talking about the fragility of their existence being about like making sure that the power can stay on to continue yeah. to run the simulation. And that becomes a really interesting um, aspect of at least, you know, in sort of thinking of the post narrative um, that there's this kind of potentially finite nature, even to their existence within the simulation too, because the power could be shut off, you know? So but, that was yeah, interesting. It's terribly useful as a plot device, right? Because we get Lily going back to her ex-boyfriend and hugging him. And when she hugs Jamie, it's such a, audience high because poor bloody jamie like what a nice guy oh, I know. <laughs> yeah and yeah what a terrible but when she's approaching him and he doesn't know he hasn't seen her theoretically yeah. in years um and it's just like it's a beautiful payoff and you kind of really want that in a movie i think you want to know what happens to the characters kind of after the movie ends and you want to you don't want to be like oh what about poor jamie like he didn't really didn't do anything and just got you know shot in his own apartment poor bastard but in this case, you got a way of, of sort of not ruining that story. Like, actually, he survived, and uh, we have a shot of him with a couple of bandages. No, no, he's again almost like time travel. We get a do-over. I, I was just going to say, if you look at if you look at these, like like if you look at Ex Machina, Annihilation, and now Devs, I think that's also kind of uh, I would now say that is a an Alex Garland uh, kind of. Uh, quality that we see in his stories is that they end with this kind of, um, all three of them, they end with this kind of, uh, uh, uh an open-ended question. There isn't a clear, um, and concise and neatly wrapped up resolution 
Um, although there is, you know, there is sort of, I mean, they're resolved, the narratives resolve, but like in Ex Machina, we're left with Ava, uh, arriving, you know, on the streets of a city. Right. And like, what does that mean? What does that mean for the future? We don't know. Like that's the end of the story in Annihilation. We find that, um, the, uh, the entity that's been killed, uh, I guess, or disconnected by, uh, Natalie Portman, uh, it, they arrive back at their house or their apartment or whatever it is. And they're not, or he's not himself or is she still herself? Like it's sort of unclear. And there's sort of that open-ended question. What does that mean? And then this ends in the similar fashion too, where it's like they're gone, but they're still alive, but they're in this other place. And, you know, were they really alive in the beginning? And I mean, it just asks all these questions. And so the story kind of continues. And I think that's what makes for such, again, great science fiction is like you, you, you leave the theater or turn off the show or whatever, and there's still so much to explore and discuss and consider uh, within the story that you've just, uh, you know, experienced. Yeah, I love, I love double endings where, where the characters get both options. Like the character doesn't die and the character doesn't live. They die and they live. Right. And it's really hard to pull off. You have to set it up really well. And I'm not comparing myself to Alex Garland in any way. My brother and I have a screenplay that we had been working on with, with a few friends, uh, screenwriters. And, and we managed to, in that, um, screenplay, give the character a double ending. He both doesn't get what he wants and he gets what he wants. And, uh, and the same thing here, the audience gets to see the characters die and, and, you know, you, Nick Offerman gets his just desserts in some fashion. Uh, she doesn't, but there's nothing you can do about it. She's the tragedy. He's the, the, uh, uh, uh whatever, you know, he, his is, is going to happen. And yet they both get their, they both get what they want anyway, uh, which is her unknowingly realizing she wants Jamie and him wanting his family. and. I think that's very satisfying. So what Mike was saying for the audience to be able to reconcile that without it feeling forced or a gimmick or something, it's all, you know, very de uh, deftly laid out. And I also wanted to point out that in sunshine, uh, the Danny Boyle movie that, that Alex Garland wrote, they, you know, they're, they're on the spaceship, you know, heading towards the sun to, to restart it basically, or, or, you know, give it juice, give the sun juice. And, um, they have a room where they can view the sun and it looks very similar to the room in devs. It's very like a flat yes. single pew. It's a flat single pew with a, a viewing area. Now, in that case, they're obviously, you know, um, uh, looking at the sun directly. So they put on special glasses and it's the whole thing. But, um, you know, but it is so similar. There's this reverence, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and that that movie also has a has a event horizon ish sort of multiverse, you know, aspect to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, certainly Alex Garland is no stranger to this concept. He's probably the only guy who could write and direct this series, I would think. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really interesting. My question I'm going to leave you with, or the last question I'd like to ask you is: Does this Let's imagine for a second we don't have a format comparison. Does this, is this like a movie version? I know it isn't a movie, but is this like a movie version of Black Mirror 
or is it not that bleak or not or is it more ethereal like if you could make a you know black mirror as a standalone one it turns into a series as it were does this connect or do you feel like it's a completely different type of entertainment that you're watching i'll start with you matt do you feel like that i think it's so much more of a different kind of thing i mean i love black mirror don't get me wrong like i mean metalhead i love that episode that was (laughs) one of my favorites so so dark and such a fun kind of action narrative but um and i love that that program i think there's so many great episodes of black mirror but i feel like there's something different going on here i feel like it's 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 a similar embrace of and an engagement with you know, all of the sort of theoretical and emerging and existing technologies, right? So it is kind of a a, a, a thematic um, and sociological and um, philosophical exploration of, you know, what do all these technologies mean? What, how do we integrate them into our lives? And are they good or bad? You know, the whole thing of, you know, the deep fakes and the, uh, you know, digital humans and, you know, all the kinds of stuff as a lot of that you're working with, Mike. Um, and I think there's so much of that in this and that's really exciting. And that does feel kind of like it touches into that black mirror kind of, um, uh, it, it, some of those touchstones are kind of being uh, flirted with here, but I actually think that on a bigger level, there's something else that's going on thematically, maybe because it's longer, maybe because we get more in depth with some of these characters, but I feel like this feels like it's really getting into something. Um, it felt deeper to me, I guess, than the Black Mirror episodes, maybe because of the time constraints, they're all, you know, an hour or less, if memory serves. And so maybe there's something in that, maybe in the length, but I, I this felt different to me than that. It didn't have that same I think the Black Mirror ones tend to be a little bit, they tend to be a little darker and maybe just a tad more cynical. And there were elements of this, certainly that were dark, but there were elements of it that I felt like were um, fairly optimistic. There was like a, a potentially positive vision. Like, I don't know that I felt like other than the um, Kenton character, I don't know that there were any evil characters in this story or malevolent characters. There were certainly people who were morally conflicted, but I think that, uh, they are, there, there seemed to be, um, some, uh, some positive, uh, motivation or some, uh, not necessarily ill intent, uh, in the part of many of the characters, aside from the, the security guy who was a total tool. So I guess, yeah, I guess to me, it feels like it's something okay. a little different. I think... <laughs> and Jason, what do you think? I think, uh, while I agree with Matt, I love Black Mirror. I think Black Mirror is more of an observational and sort of a commentary on the nature of our current sort of technology and, and social kind of addictions and things like that. Thus, obviously, the reference Black Mirror to the empty, you know, you know, device screen, but, um, I would say that devs is probably closer to something like Shane Carruth's movie primer for me. Uh, and maybe even on a less heady level and more fun level, like Lucy, uh, um, 
I think it, you know, it, it's more the questioning nature of existence, which I don't believe Black Mirror really um, tackles directly. It's more about, well, we're here, so let's comment on it rather than devs and some of these other movies are more about why are we here and what is our purpose uh, for me. Uh, I like all of them equally. I just, they're, they're different, you know, uh, they're different sides of a more than two-sided coin. <laughs> yeah. What would you say, Mike? Um, yeah, I think that, um, I didn't go like a lot of people in, especially when the show first came out, were going to black mirror. I didn't, I totally with you on going to X machina, like there's, you know, great lines in X machina that resonate here. There's one like a, uh, if you've created a consciousness machine, it's not the history of man, it's the history of gods. There's the whole sort of sense of AI is this sort of thing. And, and there's a whole lot of that kind of sentiment here that like after the film is over, I just keep on thinking about. Um, but it isn't the shock value that you got in um, in Black Mirror. There's, there's, a, there's a more delicate hand at play. So I love both, but yeah, I just didn't feel like it was um it was the film success successor to black mirror so in this series i basically thought that there was just like a more delicate hand at play and i must admit you know you you finish seeing something and you like to think about it and ponder it and certainly that's the case here i i said earlier at the beginning of the show i was sort of keen to see them do more i don't think you can make a sequel to this <laughs> but if you could make a sequel, uh, I think it's still a really rich vein that he could mine. So hopefully he'll find some other vehicle to do that. Because uh, this idea of um, of what might be possible if you expanded computationally and, and dealt with this multiverse is, is mm, really subtle in this film in one sense compared to, say, Avengers, where they're like jumping around in multiverses or Doctor Strange or whatever. And yet it's incredibly um, pervasive and just completely changes everything in this film. And to be both subtle and like a sledgehammer at the same time is just some really good writing. Here, here. Hey, um, we got to go. Uh, wrap it up for this week. Um, I'm already thinking we should be doing a Picard episode, uh, if no other reason than to force Jason to watch it. You Let's do it. just <laughs> stun me here. Um, but if I, you, I'll, I'll put it to the top of the pile. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, but Jason, if people want to get in touch or or see what you guys are at, um. Where can they follow you? Uh, Jason Diamond everywhere. The Diamond Bros, Frame.io. Uh, uh, Josh and I are no longer um, a part of Supersphere, which is, uh, I'm only saying that for anyone who's trying to hit me up. Uh, that is purely just an uh, uh, opportunities uh, issue, not a uh, corporate issue. We are uh, broadening our, re-broadening our horizons by uh, including you know, our, um, traditional media, uh, focus alongside, you know, new technologies and advanced media instead of only the sort of live and VR stuff. And we wish those guys well, and we are, uh, excited about what they're doing as well. As long as you keep filming stuff with the Muppets or Sesame street, I should say. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we did all the Elmo's world stuff in early February or late January. And we managed I can't to believe they pay you money to do that. Yeah, it's just such either. a good job. And we managed to squeeze a commercial in on March 11th, right before we quarantined on the Ooh. 13th, which was fun. Yeah. Okay. And Matt, what about you? 
Uh, I am at mattwallen.com, and I am at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts. And one kind of cool little note um, is in the spring of 2021, uh, myself, uh, with the help of uh, my good buddy, our good buddy, Ty Ellingson, uh, we at Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts are starting a minor and concentration in visual effects, uh, teaming oh, wow. up with uh, the wow. Department of Communication Arts and the Department of Cinema. And, uh, I think it's going to be pretty awesome. And there'll be some stuff about that on the VCU Arts website uh, probably Amen. in the next week or so. I, I want to do that. That sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> when do I sign up? Um, shut up and take my money already. Um, and obviously I'm over at FX Guide. Uh, we're going to have, um, by the time you hear this probably, uh, or very close to, uh, kind of a different story on devs. We're looking at it uh, and using it as a chance to discuss uh, quantum computing and principles of uh, how a quantum computer actually works, partly because it's fun and partly because hopefully someday it will be uh, relevant to our work. But uh, I need to read a, that. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of nice. We did something similar, I guess, when we're looking at uh, the original DNEG work uh, around the black hole and uh, the nature of how they uh, did... Uh, explain stuff and so we've actually spoken to other people other than the direct uh devs team uh, at dneg because as i said at the uh, outset they've done a lot of these kind of projects and i think they've done just such a great job do you guys you want to guess how many employees there are like obviously this is before the crisis and stuff but when dneg was at its uh you know like running really well at the beginning of this year before the shutdown how many employees they had just want to guess they have, I mean, they have a while, major force. That's more than one office, just at the, obviously, right? Or just yeah. in the London office or? Yeah. 15. They have more than one office. So, no, you, so you want. Try again. Are we guessing, are we guessing the, the whole of DNEG across the world? Yes. Yes. I don't know. 5,000? Uh, guess again. Um, am I, I'm low? Yeah. They're at 8,000 before Jesus. the uh, shutdown. I know. Wow. That extraordinary? That's incredible. That's. I know. Huge. It's just uh, so it's great to talk to those guys, but it's also great to have uh, a window into some of the ways that they work, because they do so much great work. Um, yeah. And and so I'm looking forward to uh, publishing that on FX Guide. Uh, but that's it for now. Thank you so much for being with us again. Apologies, but I'd want to thank the people that pinged me and told me to, uh, you know, why aren't you doing podcasts? Same. You know, same. We need them right now. Same. So yeah, we we love hearing from you guys. So thanks so much for doing that. And uh, thank you guys for joining me again here on the show. Until next time, uh, we'll catch you where I hope we'll be talking about uh, Admiral Picard, but let's see what happens. Okay, see you guys. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.